Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Film Scene in Iowa City. Thank you for joining us this afternoon. Our program tonight is about climate change, and we'll be exploring how the concept of climate change has evolved in both scientific understanding and in public discourse over the past 25 years. What does climate science tell us about our state, our nation, and the larger world? How has the political debate about climate change affected our actions? And has lack of understanding and disagreement about causes damaged our ability to safeguard delicate environments and species? There are lots of questions, and we have an exceptional group of people here with us tonight to give us some answers, or at least to consider the questions with us. Uh, before we start, I'd like to remind everyone that you're welcome to come to these live shows. We do them once a month, and it's always a pleasure to have you here in the audience. Otherwise, you can catch them later on UITV, YouTube, iTunes, and the International Programs website, which is international.uiowa.edu. And for more information on Film Scene, go to icfilmscene.org. So in this first part of our discussion on climate change, we're going to examine science and the public interest with two people who played a central role in researching and providing insight to both governmental leaders and the public over the last two and a half decades. They are Jerry Schnorr, just next to me here, University of Iowa Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering and co-director of the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research. Nice to have you here, Jerry. Mm -hmm. And at the end, we have Greg Carmichael, also University of Iowa Professor of Chemical and Biochemical Engineering, uh, co-director of the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research. And again, thank you both for coming. Uh, Jerry, I would just like to start with you. So, you know, we're here tonight to discuss climate change and to celebrate the 25th anniversary of this uh, very important center that you and Jerry are, uh, you and Greg are in charge of. Um, could you give us some background into what was happening locally and um, nationally, internationally, at the time this idea bubbled up to begin this center. You have some great guests tonight, <laughs> actually, to talk about the events that were uh, ongoing 25 years ago. But maybe I would start with 1988. That was the year we had a really hot summer across the nation, Iowa included. And uh, James Hansen, a triple Iowa graduate in physics here at the University of Iowa, testified uh, before a Senate committee. And he was really the first one who said that uh, this is a very serious problem and we will need to eventually take action on it. And that, uh, I think, caught everybody by surprise and the wheels seemed to start turning after that. Mm -hmm. Well, those of us who live in Iowa know that sometimes we do have terrifically hot summers. What is it that, that um, uh, for people who do the research you do, how is it that a particular hot summer or a chain of hot summers makes you think that something might be happening? Greg. So what we've learned is that uh, we run now very sophisticated uh, climate models. And the models would predict that as we warm the climate, uh, we would shift the probability in a very interesting way and not intuitive to the public. It shifts the, the likelihood of both extreme heat events and cold uh, colder events and so that was actually a predicted phenomena and for a long time people would say well and it is still true that we can't associate a single event to a, a, a warmed climate but we're getting much much better at attribution and the scientific uh, certainty of this increased frequency is now pretty well established. Mm. Well uh, you mentioned to me in an earlier email that the um, genesis of this CGRER 
um, was really quite unique mm -hmm. here to the University of Iowa. Could you, uh, Greg, describe how yeah, that all happened? Yeah, I think it is a unique. It's a unique model in the U.S., and it, it uh, is something remarkable about Iowa. It was very much a grassroots effort. So it started in the mid-1980s. And unlike elsewhere, we have no atmospheric science or meteor meteorology department, so we have no the ownership of climate change research didn't belong anywhere. And it was just a group of interested uh, faculty members to, to try to get together who was interested in studying it, but trying to find a group that could have a dialogue. And we got great reception from uh, the Vice President for Research at the time, DC Spreetsters Bach, and really nurtured us. And then you'll hear later, very unique set of uh, uh, funding sources and support at the state level that, that really allowed us as this grassroots, non-atmospheric science-oriented center. And, and I think it served us extremely well because we've gone we became interdisciplinary from the beginning. And now we have more than 110 faculty members from across the state in, in every college and every discipline. And you're involved not only in research related to the Midwest or to Iowa, but a, a look at global changes and right, the, the actual acronym is sort of hard to say uh, I wanted it to be Jerry uh, <laughs> the Global Environmental Research Institute but we didn't end up with that it's a regional environmental group it's the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Re uh, Research and uh, indeed we do work at the regional level the Iowa Midwest and, and agricultural effects, for example, but uh, we're running global models here as well. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you, the two of you uh, wrote a piece for the Press Citizen that appeared yesterday, which was, I think, you know, extremely interesting. And uh, you talked about the fact that climate is not just climate. Global warming is not just global warming. All kinds of things, social constructs, um, of course, what happens to our rivers, what happens to farmland, all of these things are involved and intertwined. So as the center goes about its research, um, to whom are you reporting out findings? Well, that's really changed over time. If you go back to the beginning of the center, m you know, certainly the physical scientists uh, who were involved in that were really focused on research. And the general notion was that it may be a very important problem, but everybody agreed that more research was necessary. And at that point in time, we were more uh, talking scientist to scientist. Uh, but I think that's changed now. And We've evolved, and now our audience is uh, really trying to uh, take our research to help inform the public and in inform the, the policymakers of uh, you know, what's the foundation of the problem and then uh, providing a basis and a motivation. So it's gone from kind of a research consensus but no urgency to take action to, uh, to where I think we are now where it's an urgent problem and, and we really don't have much time to delay. Formally, I guess we report to the Vice President for Research at the University of Iowa, but as Greg says, uh, a lot of the research papers and reports and white papers that are written here by the faculty in many disciplines at the University of Iowa, they're directed at various uh, different agencies. And we've had, uh, we've worked with uh, Mayor Frank County and others uh, to inform the governor and the state legislature about uh, climate change uh, through through the last uh, 10 years or more. Now, I know, as you mentioned, we'll have a chance to talk about this a little more thoroughly in, in the next segment. But um, the funding for the institute, actually, the, first of all, the institute uh, or the center was approved by the Board of Regents. And the institute was 
begun under. First, I guess, the state legislature oh, yeah, through the yeah. Iowa Energy Act of yeah. 1990. And one of your guests later, David Osterberg, mm -hmm. was uh, part, instrumental in that yeah. among a, a, a small group. And that established, a, and actually in the original legislation, it said that we were to be the global warming uh, center for mm. the state of Iowa, and that Iowa State would have a sister center for uh, Iowa energy yeah. uh, and energy yeah. policy and energy uh, fixes to mm -hmm. to this problem. Mm. But that's all sort of under under one roof now with this center, and and you have colleagues at Iowa State and the other universities. Yeah. Yeah. But as Greg yeah. said, we're much broader than the Global Warming Center, mm -hmm. and that's why we mm -hmm. our name is Global and Regional mm -hmm. Environmental. Mm -hmm. Research, so right, mm -hmm. right. Well, so Jerry, I know you do work on Iowa's waterways and the Mississippi River, and some work in Muscatine. Um, could you give us some examples from your work, um, things that you've seen or learned over these past 25, 30 years about what's happening here in Iowa that really causes us some concern? Well, of course, the runoff from agriculture, uh, nutrients, nitrogen, and phosphorus that we apply on the land and helps our crops. Uh, unfortunately, corn and soybeans are kind of leaky in that uh, we get some runoff and we lose some of that uh, fertilizer. And that causes problems not only for our waters here, but for downstream waters all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, right now, we've got a project in which uh, um, people in geography and computer science and engineering are all working together to um, run models that will project our water quality and quantity out to 2068 mm -hmm. models driven by uh, climate change models. Wow. Mm -hmm. So we see um, drought in California. We know the aquifer in, in Iowa is uh, a resource that we draw from, but it takes a very, 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 very long time to refill an aquifer. So um, if, if either of you had to name um, one or two of our most serious problems here in Iowa, things we might be ab able to actually take independent action to, to moderate in some way. The, the farm chemicals would be one area to think about. I guess I would about. probably say the, uh, n the nutrient and the water quality would be the issue that I would name that I guess the most at the top of the mm -hmm. list for, the, for Iowa. Yeah. yeah. So Greg, as you look at these last 25 years or so, what do you think has changed in public perception of the whole issue of of these, these many names we use, the environment or global warming or climate change, what do you think um, the public understands about this now? Well, I think it's been a roller coaster. I think it's uh, early on, I think when it was being established and people were, a lot of research being done, I think there was some growing recognition that it was a, a pretty serious problem and then the human dimension of it was being better established and then, and some momentum moving forward. Uh, I think riding on the tail of uh, the uh, international community's ability to deal with recognition of global problems, uh, loss of stratospheric ozone from CFCs, acid rain, really got beyond borders working together. And then I think it took, uh, as it got more serious and then got closer to policy, uh, the economic component, and it became a little more polarized. And, and so I think groups uh, have divided a little bit. But now I sense that... Uh, the, the body of evidence is such that uh, I think uh, there's momentum now moving forward that uh, we just can't uh, ignore the problem and it's not going to go away. And so, and there's lots of reasons to deal with it because there's lots of challenges, but there's tremendous opportunities uh, moving forward. I mean, for, for economics, for people, I mean, for 
there's just lots of pluses. And, and when you say opportunities, you mean there there are new kinds of energy industries. That yeah, I think we have a you know envision a, a, a future where we have um, more renewable energy. People live closer to work or commuting, uh, more of a community sense, uh, energy efficiency, how we you know, live our lives, the building efficiencies, uh, the codes are written so that they're much more efficient. Uh, and in aggregate, that's all going to benefit us tremendously because the other side of climate change is all this use of fossil fuel energy and the air pollution associated with it has a tremendous drag on human health. Seven million excess deaths a year due to human health. and. Uh, they have the same source and uh, tackling these problems in a kind of, you know, good to the environment sense has a, it's a, it's a good long play for, for society. Solar jobs and wind jobs we already are creating, that's the engine for economic opportunity in the future, a complete change out of our uh, transition from fossil fuels to cleaner energy and energy efficiency, as Greg said, that lots of jobs and hopefully uh, generation of wealth and prosperity for uh, not only Iowans, but mm -hmm. for the whole country and the whole world. Right, right. So is it a surprise to the two of you that there are currently candidates running for um, the presidency who say, I don't, I don't think there's anything to this global warming. I don't really believe there's anything to climate change. Do they really believe that, do you think? Or uh, why would someone say that when there's so much scientific evidence? Well, I think... Uh, I think it's not really relevant what they believe. I think what it's what their uh, sense their constituents uh, are, are saying. And again, if you do the poll of the U.S. society, there there are camps at that whole spectrum of of that. And you know, I think it is um, they're taking actions now. But I do think that as we move forward, we are making a lot of actions. And in in some sense, there's so much more happening at the local scale, at the state scale. And, you know, I think the momentum, and at the federal level, I mean, I think what's being done in terms of enforcing laws through EPA and other actions, the U.S. position is actually pretty strong. And in Washington, I think, uh, I think we'll hear a lot more about it, and I think there's actually more opportunity moving forward than, than we think. Uh, I do think there's movement right yeah. now. And uh, people are beginning to see that one can uh, maybe tackle this problem and uh, prosper in some ways from it through renewable energy, for example. And I think that you'll see movement both in the Paris climate talks, which are coming up uh, in December. And as Greg said, the really the action right now, I call it coalitions of the willing. The people who see that this is a serious problem and that uh, if you can have some foresight, you could actually uh, profit from it, uh, are taking action. And it's mostly cities. It's uh, industries, certain, uh, certain industries at the local and, and sometimes states. The New, New England has a carbon trading scheme. California has a carbon trading scheme. So it's starting like that. And maybe the cities and the states and the industries and, and, and the non-governmental organizations, the, the groups of people working together, will pull the federal government along. That's, that's my mm -hmm. hope. And I think there's one more dimension at the international level. I think early on the... U.S. position about inaction was that one can't go it alone. The mm -hmm. U.S. doesn't have the control of its own destiny from climate. It's what the rest of the world does, including China. And, and I think we are seeing now that you know, China is also addressing these issues in some ways, uh, at least more uh, vocally about, and actually taking actions it, both in renewable energy, energy efficiencies. Their problems are d bigger, but they're, they are not sitting still. And so I think that that's another dimension mm -hmm. to this 
optimism in uh, <laughs> Paris. Uh, more than 75% of the emissions, uh, the countries that are emitting, more than 75% of the greenhouse gases right now have all chimed in with their pledges. We call INDCs is the new vernacular. And uh, while I think it's still short of what we need, hopefully there will be some uh, brave steps taken uh, prior to the Paris uh, climate talks. But it's there's definitely movement, and everyone realizes the need to contribute, both uh, developing countries and developed countries. Mm -hmm. The developed countries have to take the lead because they've, they're responsible for maybe 70% of the emissions that are already accumulated in the atmosphere, and they've profited from it and have a good economy in part, at least, from those emissions. So we have to take the lead, but everyone realizes now they, they are going to be a part of the solution. Yeah, I remember uh, 10, 20 years ago when very often, you know, this global north versus global south or the more developed countries that had, as you say, contributed dramatically to the troubles we're having right now and countries just kind of coming up and beginning their own industrial buildup, I would say, hey, you know, it's our chance to, to move ahead. But I suspect some of these new technologies, some of the, the um, efficiencies that, that have been developed over the years are are especially attractive to some of the nations that are now trying to move ahead. They'll, maybe they'll be able to miss some of that messiest part of development. Yeah. You know, I think that's part of it, but I, I think the, the larger driving force is that there's, I think, just collective awareness that there's a sense of urgency. And that, and that, that urgency requires, um, it's not just one thing, that, there's no one quick fix. It requires all of those things that we can do. And I think that that is one of, I think that's an underlying factor. And it, and it's being enabled by the fact that we have this technology and understanding and that clearly that can be shared, uh, you know, the development can be done quickly. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, but there is a sense to act ur urgent uh, mm -hmm. because that carbon dioxide we emit in the atmosphere today is going to be in warming for the next uh, half of it for the next 100 years, 20% for the next uh, out beyond 500 years. So mm -hmm. what we do today matters. Yeah. <laughs> Not only climate change, though, there's strong co-benefits. And Greg and collaborators have been very active in the, uh, the health benefits that we will achieve by getting our emissions under control. You might tell the black carbon story, Greg. I think that's an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, that's that intersection between air pollution and, and climate change. And uh, where I said that CO2 is warming the atmosphere and will be here for 100 years, the soot from our uh, diesel vehicles, for example, for or from our cook stoves or our, our uh, fireplaces, uh, that's going to be in the atmosphere for a few days, and it warms almost as much, 50% as much as carbon dioxide. And so, plus it has a direct negative impact to human health. Uh, and so taking, you know, air pollutants out of the air today is an immediate benefit. We get the immediate health benefit. Uh, and so that's a lot of action at the city level is you can, you know, you get an immediate health benefit in, and, and at the same time, if you can come up with the right strategies, you can get action on climate right away. And I think that's been, um, we've worked a lot with the international agencies, UN systems, World Bank, and that's where a lot of real policy action and actually intervention is taking place in that uh, area. So it seems to me that both of you feel rather positively disposed for, for at least, at least um, a tendency toward appreciation of the need for change. Uh, how, how does that get worked through governments like uh, like our federal government and um, 
Do you, do you think the greatest progress can be made on the local level? Is that what I'm hearing? I think the greatest progress right now is being made at the local level. But uh, to the extent that, uh, again, the uh, United Nations Framework mm -hmm. Convention for Climate Change meeting in Paris in December, to the extent that that can be successful, we could p possibly have at least some soft law that would be pulling uh, countries that would provide more support for countries to reduce their emissions with federal policies. We haven't talked yet in the program about things like, um, um, you know, mass transit in the United States, or, or some of the some of the ways in which we could reduce our own uh, individually, yeah. um, um, our own individual contribution to pollution um, within the center. Do you folks look at things like this, the, uh, the advantages do. of yeah. mass transportation? We do. Well, uh, mass transport w actually was a big part of the 1996 Greenhouse Gas Action Report that was the very first one written in the state, and it was written by our uh, center. It was sort of dead on arrival a little bit uh, in, the, in the state house, I would say, but there were a lot of good ideas, even in those early reports that involved what we can do as individuals with our own uh, carbon footprint and what the state could do through uh, policies and some of those are still relevant. The state has made progress of course we're now 30 plus percent of our electricity is coming from wind here at the University of Iowa. We are pledged towards 40 percent renewables by year 2020. We're burning uh, biomass and oat holes and uh, wood chips and miscanthus in our uh, power plant. All that is a result of action that is beginning to take place here locally. Mm -hmm. The coalitions of the willing. Yeah. <laughs> and I think transport is a huge sector and it's being addressed uh, and we're doing work in the, in the center as well and it's coming from both directions. It's uh, contributed significantly to the CO2 uh, but also it's one of the, it's probably the main sector in most cities for the health uh, uh, effects and so we're doing work uh, with healthy cities for the World Health Organization for example looking at uh, interventions at the city level and it's mass transport, it's, uh, it's people living closer to work, it's uh, uh, bike electrification, it's the, it's the... It matters of course where you get your electricity from and too much still comes from coal. So if you're in California where there's very little coal power, the electric vehicles really make a difference to the greenhouse gas budget yeah. as well as the health right. uh, aspects. Here in Iowa, We've improved maybe from 75% coal 10 years ago to less than 65% uh, coal now, but we still have a relatively large mm -hmm. component of our electricity provided by dirty power. And a large part of the transport sector that people don't normally think of also from both uh, an air pollution and climate is off-road vehicles. Mm. Construction vehicles, tractors uh, also are... Uh, big sources, and that's a sector that EPA is looking at as well as international community. Mm -hmm. Well, then one of the other areas that I, I think, uh, I know a lot of um, seacoast cities are, are obviously thinking about, if not actually working hard to, to defend themselves in the future, but these rising uh, coastal levels, are, it's going to be an issue here in the U.S. and, and any coastal uh, location in the world, right? If yep, we continue to have the s sea levels is is rising, and we're committed to an increase in sea level rise. Uh, you look at the uh, acceleration of the melting of uh, the glaciers, uh, and the models are certainly showing now. Uh, we can measure the the increase, and you project out to 2050 um, under 
not the worst case scenario, but you certainly see that uh, coastal cities, we could see a rise of several meters. Uh, um, and, you know, the U.S. and others, uh, the infrastructure build-out will be tremendous, but you think of all the environmental refugees that will come from the low-lying island states and others that are not really going to be able to deal with, uh, with such a large rise. Yeah. Yeah. You know that property you were going to buy yeah. in Florida? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, Maybe you shouldn't go there. <laughs> yeah. Well, is there anything else we should say here as we wrap up this first segment about the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research, uh, your, your current projects, or what you hope for from your students you're working with now? Well, I think we haven't talked about students, but I think what I'm very proud of and also I think what Seagrew is very special at is that it has such a, a broad interdisciplinary group and that all is looking at the problem differently. We have much more... Uh, understanding now and contributions of the, the policy, social science, even the humanities aspects for it. And, and all those things are important for any effective policy. And, and the students are really uh, uh, remarkable. They probably get the best experience because they are actually studying and actually doing the hands-on interdisciplinary mm -hmm. research at the cutting end. And, mm -hmm. and they can see that there's a pathway to at least uh, uh, communicate their findings to the broader public, which I think is important. And then also uh, to the policymakers. Yeah. One of the things I'm proud of, and Joe Bolcom has played a large role in our center, is the Iowa Climate Statements. So each year we give us a statement to the public and uh, about where we stand with respect to climate, both globally and at the state level. I think that's quite an accomplishment. Wow, it's such a pleasure to have you both here. Thank you very much. You've been uh, listening to Jerry Schnoor and Greg Carmichael, uh, both from the University of Iowa College of Engineering and they're co-directors of the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research here at the University of Iowa. We hope you can stay with us for part two in this three-part uh, segment, uh, three-part series, rather, <laughs> when um, we will talk about Iowa and climate change. All World Canvas programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs website. And and uh, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Good night. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you this afternoon from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City. This is part two of our three-part series called The Evolution of Climate Change, 25 Years and Counting. In this segment, we'll focus specifically on Iowa and climate change, and so I'd like to introduce my guests. Just next to me is Jerry Schnorr, University of Iowa Professor of Civil and Environmental Engineering and co-director of the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research. Thanks for being here, Hi, Jerry. Hi, Joe. Hi. And next to him is Dave Osterberg, University of Iowa Professor of Occupational and Environmental Health in the College of Public Health. Nice to have you here, Dave. Happy to be here. Thank you. And at the far end, we have Tim Dwight, president of iPower Corp. Uh, and uh, the uh, president of the Iowa Solar Energy Trade Association. Nice to have you here, Tim. Thanks, Tim. I think lots of people know you from your prior <laughs> career as a football player. Good to be Good home. to have you here. Thanks. Um, so um, this is the second part of a three-part series. Some of you may have seen or heard the uh, first part uh, where we discussed a particular institute here at the University of Iowa, the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research, which is uh, co-directed by Greg Carmichael and Jerry Schnorr. But I'll ask Jerry to give us just a little bit of a, 
of an introduction once again to what the center does. Um, you're concerned at the center not only with Iowa research or Midwestern research, but, but also we're looking at things in a global perspective. That's right. We're, we're, we're interested in climate change as one of our uh, many uh, research areas in our portfolio, but it's written quite broadly that uh, environmental change of all kinds, including water quality, air quality, soil quality, and um, because we have over 100 members all across the state and, uh, and many here at the University of Iowa, it includes uh, about 20 departments, so all over the university. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's a center that has been growing and changing and evolving itself over these last 25 years. I just think as that's true. Has. Just like the climate change debate has mm -hmm. evolved, I would say that the uh, research and the people have changed mm -hmm. as well in the center. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the pleasures in this particular segment is that we get to talk a little bit about how this all got worked through our state legislature, how we came up with funding for the center. Um, going back many, many years, I know, Dave, you were uh, in government here at the at, uh, in Iowa. You were in the State House, and you chaired a couple of important committees, a committee on energy and, and uh, environmental protection, a committee on agriculture. And uh, so take us back, if you will, to some years ago when the environment was, was clearly rising to the top of at least your interests, and uh, the idea for uh, a center like this first bubbled up. Right, right. This is 1990, and at 1990, there weren't quite as... There weren't all these climate deniers claiming that nothing was happening. And in fact, we put together the money for this center. We worked in the inside of the legislature. We, they were doing the science. We were doing how do you fund stuff. And we're able to put together a center at Iowa State University and another one here at the University of Iowa paid for with state dollars by the, the head of what's called the utilities board kind of getting the utilities companies together with us to make us agree on energy efficiency and renewable energy. And the head of that who did all of this was obviously a Republican because he was appointed by the governor of the time, always, Terry Branstad. And so that was bipartisan. We could, claim, we could start a global warming center in 1990. And I don't know if you could do one in 2010. Mm -hmm. But we did it then. Mm -hmm. So the money, just we just said, use the money somehow and... They figured out how to use it well. Even uh, Governor Branson at the time was head of the National Governors Association, and he had education as his number one uh, uh, area of interest, but uh, climate change and the environment was number two. Yeah. So it was a pretty interesting time back then when, when the center began. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, so who were the, the uh, people who initially worked with you on this project? Well. We had been able to do a number of centers in a short amount of time. When we passed a groundwater protection law in 1987, we set up a center here at the University, Cheek, Leopold Center at Iowa State, and then a, a center at UNI, which did uh, waste reduction. Um, a guy named Paul Johnson was important in all of these. Uh, he later went on to run the DNR in the state and run the soil, what was called then the Soil Conservation Service. Quite a talented guy, but... We also had the chair of the uh, Environment Committee, a guy named Ralph Rosenberg, now at the Iowa Environmental Council. A few senators, but mainly it was House members, and uh, we just worked harder, got the thing started. And, 
And it, I think it's amazing now when people look at such gridlock going on, especially in Congress, um, the representative, our representative in that body, might, Dave Loebsack may say some things about that. But here it was also in, the, in Iowa really possible to come together. Everything kind of had to be bipartisan because you had a Democratic legislature and a Republican governor. So we could create the Leopold Center, which was a little, little beyond where most farmers were, and a Global Climate Change Center. At least that's what our legislation called for here at the University of Iowa. I thought maybe it was easier then. We should maybe mention too that investor-owned utilities were involved as well, and the ratepayers, of course, from the state of Iowa are the ones who actually fund these centers, the Iowa Energy Center at Iowa State and the Center for Global and Regional Environmental Research at Iowa. And it's tiny. It's a tiny portion, just a tiny, tiny little portion of your bill. But you multiply about 1.2 million bills, and all of a sudden you got money. Just like when the, we did the Leopold Center, it was uh, the same thing. Tiny, tiny tax on fertilizer, nitrogen, and on pesticides. But we use a lot of that stuff. Consequently, tiny, tiny percentage, fairly large amount. Uh, maybe Jerry doesn't think it's enough, but it's a fairly large enough. Now we're very grateful for the support. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, Dave, now you're in the College of Public Health. I am. What is your particular area of research? Well, I, um, I do a lot of stuff on outreach to uh, other communities, to NGOs, to um, organizations that are trying to make changes in their, uh, in their own communities. We've worked with people in Northeast Iowa on frac sand mining, for instance, in my department. Uh, we've done stuff on confined animal feeding operations and a lot of stuff on energy, too, because as uh, Greg Carmichael, who was on here last segment, says, this is a health issue. Uh, to the extent that you're going to make your electricity with coal-fired power plants, you're going to be a sicker society than if you make it with wind power. Or solar power. Or yeah, solar power. Very solar good, power. Solar <laughs> very good lead into our next guest, Tim Dwight. So, Tim, you are passionate about solar energy. And uh, tell, us, tell us why this is the, the uh, area of your deepest concentration now. Uh, well, it's my job now. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's a business that I own, so you have to kind of make it, you know, your business. Um, but, uh, you know, getting into energy just five, six, seven years ago, I didn't really know what to expect. Um, I didn't understand the opportunity that's in front of us. I didn't really understand climate change. I didn't understand how uh, just uh, a relic that how we power our lives today and where we're moving forward. So um, I've learned a lot in these last five years, and it's exciting to, to think about, you know, back in the 1940s, 1950s, I think where we're at today in energy or where we're going to modernize and how we modernized our lifestyles back in the 50s and 60s and how we grew our economy. 1957 Highway Act, right? We started building homes and moving product. We started building America. But we have to go back and rebuild all that stuff the correct way. And it's an exciting opportunity for that because the savings and the efficiencies and the health benefits like we talked about is, is astronomical is what you see. And it's something we've never experienced because we haven't done it in a long, long time. You know, it's been a long, long time since we've lived without carbon. You know, yeah, fires here back in the day, but, you know, over the last, you know, 100 years now we've been burning carbon, and it's getting more intense. So, you know, solar is, uh, solar is the, next, the next step in this whole solution, um, and there are many solutions. We have to really get into efficiencies. We have to bring in more wind power, but we have to deploy a lot of solar power out there 
to really create a robust energy system and make it resilient, make it really, really efficient, make it really affordable, and make it very dynamic. And uh, right now our, our grid's not very dynamic, so we have to, we have to implement policy, we have to implement uh, the right skill trades in this industry to make sure the stuff is put in correctly because there's a learning curve to this. And Iowa's got it at a good time. So uh, yeah, I mean, it's just a, it's a great opportunity to look at such a big issue, you know, like climate change. And I've been around the world a lot. I've been to Beijing. I've seen, I've tried to look through their skies and seen the sky, you know, look through their, their air. Um, you know, I've been to Europe. I've been to other places where you see just the amount of people using energy. And then you understand how the energy is used, how much pollution that is. And you start to multiply it, right? Like that little bill. He talked about that little percentage of bill. You start to multiply that, and that's every day. Think about rush hour. That's two times a day every hour around the world. You know, huge amounts of carbon push, 24 hours a day. You know. I really think that potential benefits are lost on most people and are astounding. Just imagine Houston and Denver and Los Angeles without any hay, you know, where you can see the mountains. Imagine kids with much less asthma, much less emphysema in the population. We're talking about some opportunities that will really improve our quality of life and create jobs. That's the beautiful thing. A lot of, lot of jobs. A lot of jobs in this industry. And the, the cost for, um, let's leave individual homeowners out for, for the moment because that can be, sometimes people can't imagine. Well, you can tell me how much it would cost for an average for a 2,000 square foot house to have appropriate solar energy um, panels put on the home. Maybe you would have a figure for that. But thinking about industry that could make better use of solar uh, en energy, it could change everything about the way a business works, right? I mean, the sun is there in Iowa most days of the year. Quite we a have bit. A very, a very, very sunny space here. So presumably, if we seriously went after solar energy in addition to the wind power we have, it could save all of us a lot of money. It could, yes. Yeah. Uh, so why haven't we adopted it? Well, the technology's been expensive. There's been certain barriers, um, financing barriers, techno technological advances, um, you know, grid barriers. Uh, there's certain issues that can happen when you have too much solar generation going in the grid because of the way we've constructed things. So there's a lot of different, mm. you know, buckets to this whole mm -hmm. kind of issue of mm -hmm. solar. And we're starting to absorb those buckets and shake them over and turn them over and get everything out, right? Like we're getting financing down. Our costs are coming down because this, this technology is scaling just like the computer scales, just like our cell phone scales, just like our monitor scale, our t yeah. flat screen TVs, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, a, it's a technology that once you hit a certain saturation point, price really, really starts to drive down mm -hmm. and we're starting to see those. But we're not there yet. We're not even close to being there. Mm -hmm. And that's the exciting thing because uh, you see the growth. We are half of 1% of the full market share right now. And we're almost least cost, we're least cost effective to the almost point. Mm -hmm. So when we get down to 2% market share, 5% market share, we're going to see solar all over the place. And it's going to take a lot of people to put it in because mm -hmm. we're doing it at 300 watts a module. Mm -hmm. When you build a power plant, that's 250 million watts. Mm -hmm. So you've got to replace all that. Plus, solar is 20% efficient right now. Nuclear is 90% efficient. So you have to build mm -hmm. quite a few solar power plants to power a nuclear power plant. But mm -hmm. when you look at the job growth, you look at the investment, it's going to be all there for everybody. And that's the exciting thing about it is you're going to grab so much more innovation into this industry like you saw with our cell phones. Yeah. Not just four or five players going to own energy. It's going to be multiple of people owning energy, which is going to drive energy costs down. It's going to make it a lot more flexible. It's going to be a lot more affordable, more efficient, and a lot more innovative. What are some uh, countries where uh, solar is really playing a large part in the overall energy use? G Germany's, Germany? Germany's been a big one. I mean, they've been... A, 
they've been implementing this technology quite a bit since the 80s. Mm -hmm. um, and they kind of really incentivized solar back in 2004 with a 90 cent feed-in tariff. And now that feed-in tariff's down to like 12 cents. And just goes to show you, once you start to scale a certain technology, it really drives down cost. Um, so you see Germany, I mean, Spain was really big into it. You see UKism, um, you know, so some South American countries. You're seeing a lot of the island countries because they have expensive energy costs because they buy diesel power. And everything that runs on island, they got to bring in. They can't dig it out of the ground. They got no island left, right? So they got to bring in all this resource. And it's pollutive. So, you know, you go to these small little islands and you see they're expensive, you know, paying 40, 50 cents a kilowatt hour, which is four or five times the cost. So that's really expensive. I mean, you see these, you know, school bills that are $56,000 a month for an energy bill for a school. That's $600,000 a year. Now imagine removing that, putting solar on that, and driving that cost way down to, you know, a couple thousand dollars a year. And we can do that today, which is great. Most of the countries that you mentioned, Germany and so forth, are among the cloudiest countries I've ever seen. We, we have so much opportunity right here in Iowa because we have uh, done well at building out the wind power. And the solar power goes so, fits so well with wind. You know, often when the wind's not blowing, the sun is shining. And we're, what's more, we're switching on our air conditioners. And so... Uh, Really, I'm convinced that the next big shoe to drop has got to be solar here in Iowa. And I'm hoping that the legi state legislature and others will help incentivize that. Well, you can do that, and we've done that. So, What you want to do is make it cheaper for the homeowner. Try to figure out ways in which that person isn't going to have to put out as much money. One of the things you get when you put up solar panels on your roof is a 30% tax credit back from the federal government. Hopefully that's going to get expanded. We should ask uh, Representative Lobosap about that uh, because it's supposed to go off at the end of 2016. But we also have one in Iowa. So I put panels on my garage. I get 30% of it paid for by the federal government. And at the time, actually I did this, I got 15% back from the state. And the reason for that is also work on an NGO. It's called the Iowa Policy Project. We put out a paper that said jobs and solar. There'll be a whole bunch of them. And then just didn't let that go there. We also decided to do a bike tour around Iowa, invite people on this bus. I didn't mean to say bike tour, a bus tour around Iowa. Get people to ride on the bus, state legislators to go out and look at what was already happening. And we got Tim Dwight to ride with us. And so... People didn't necessarily want to ride with me or the other <laughs> not-for-profits. They wanted to ride with Tim. And so consequently, we did this in 2011, right? Yeah. 2012, they passed a tax credit bill, and Joe Bolkin had a lot to do with passing that piece. And it re So if somebody's going to be paying 45% of the cost of your panels, now 48 because they've increased that, tax credit recently, you're more likely to do it. And Tim's talked about the, the technology and the price of solar coming down, and that's true, but then you also try to figure out another way to make it cheaper, and we get beyond that 0.5 to 2 to whatever, and then, then you're good to go, huh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. My friend and colleague in the audience, Mike Valdi, just solarized his house. Oh, yeah. And uh, he's... <laughs> It must be a good thing to do. He's the former director of environmental compliance oh, at I the see. University of <laughs> Iowa. So <laughs> it's, it's the way to go. Yeah. That's pretty clear. 
Well, well no, you mentioned something that I wasn't aware of before, that there's, there's an issue with too much solar getting fed into the current grid. Uh, if, there were, if there were a great deal of solar power being fed back into the grid, there would be some kind of issue with that. What am I not understanding there? Or how, cause how, how does this grid get uh, well changed? Well, we're in Iowa, we're not there yet. We're not even mm -hmm. close. We're mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. half of 1% of where we need to be at a 5% kind of threshold right. we need to hit. But how our grid structure is built is that we have power plants with outside our cities and we send power in. So once you, but we have no monitoring, no data acquisition, nothing. So we don't really understand all what's going on in our grid. Historically, we do because we have maps and recorders that we've taken over years and years, and that's how we kind of plan how much power we need on the grid. But when the sun comes out, it's the biggest generator you have. You've got a lot of solar coming in. You can create disruptions on the grid. So you have to start putting in a smart type of grid. You got to start putting in microgrids. You got to start putting in technologies where. You create massive efficiencies and you use renewable energy when it's at its most expensive time, and that's peak power. Mm -hmm. It's the dirtiest time as well. So solar really fits into that mode. So you've got to really start valuing this technology on what it does to the grid structure. And there's incredible amounts of one of the barriers being storage too. We probably need better battery technology maybe to make this a reality. Well, we're going to see where Tesla's at. See their power wall. I mean, it's exciting to see that. I think they've got. You know, they're ordered all the way into 2017. So it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's exciting to see that part of the, the answer start coming into the phase, because that's the last phase of the storage. Mm -hmm. As long as we could, once we could start storing massive amounts of energy to power buildings at night, and shifting around energy is mm -hmm. one thing that I really learned the last year and a half is microgridding, how you know, we can move energy around once we understand how much buildings need and how much they don't need. And you see massive savings on that. Mm -hmm. But right now we don't do that. We just power into things. And mm -hmm. when you have other power coming back out with solar, then you've got to be able to understand those loads and be able to shift things around and be able to absorb some of that. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of like, you know, data. There's a lot of utilities in California and New York and Massachusetts because they've had huge solar markets that are really starting to implement a lot of these technologies and it's, it's creating huge benefits for the grid. Yeah. One possibility is with the electric cars, we have 240 million vehicles in the United States, that could be short-term storage, you know, we, we call it vehicle to grid. So your, your car's battery would become a part of the solution that uh, Tim's talking about. Yeah, so when you're at work, you could just sit in there and sell 30% of your power in your, ba in your battery back to your company and yeah. they could deduct that. Yeah. yeah. You have to have or like a volt, though, oh, yeah. that has a, a storage big, big storage battery. Yeah, you got to have an electric car. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So it's Neat all. Stuff, it's right? All, I mean, yeah. think about that. Yeah. That's the innovation that's where this is going. Energy's going. It's completely right. transforming. So, so uh, when you travel around Iowa, or when any of you are around um, visiting various parts of Iowa, do you, does this buzz that I feel right now hearing you all talk about it, I is that picked up by, by other people in all parts of the state as well? They just kind of want to know when we can get going on it? Or are people, are people interested in the idea, but just don't know how to get there? <laughs> you look like a sales guy, huh? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> PM. Okay. Uh, people are excited about talking about solar, especially when I get a hold of them. You know, yeah. I'm like, hey, listen, do you yeah. want to buy more expensive energy off the grid that's dirty, or do you want to like clean your environment and save money mm -hmm. and take all this money you're giving out and put it somewhere else and go on a trip, yeah. right? Yeah. So you look at the opportunities like the farmer has, the business owner, and then eventually the mm -hmm. homeowner when this mm -hmm. industry scales some more, we can bring some costs down. Because on the residential side, we're still not there. Plus, most residentials can't fork up fourteen thousand dollars, fifteen thousand. Used to be a hundred thousand yeah, dollars back in the seventies. Right, then it was sixty. Right. Now we're down to like fourteen thousand dollars for like a four thousand watt system. Yeah. 
which is pretty great. Yeah. You know, so we're getting down there. But um, yeah, there's still things that need to happen in this industry mm -hmm. to, to make it cleaner and, and streamlined. Um, but we're, we're, we're breaking them slowly mm -hmm. down. Mm -hmm. um, but we're, we're getting there. I mean, with these guys and with you know, Senator Bolcom mm -hmm. and people up there at the Capitol, mm -hmm. understanding these opportunities and making them real for Iowans yeah. is, is huge for us. It's yeah. uh, bringing local jobs back to rural Iowa. Yeah. All right, so policy again, though. You know, when that $14,000, remember, 48% of it's got to be paid for with tax credits, right? Or is that after tax credits? No, that's before. Yeah, so, oh. you, so part of that does bring your costs down significantly. The other thing that is policy-wise, uh, when Mike Valdi gets his bill, mm -hmm. he's getting credit for his solar power at the same price that he would pay for retail. He runs his meter backwards. So in comes uh, electricity at 13 cents a kilowatt hour and, and out goes that same amount. But if the utilities get their way, they want to change that and pay him three cents. And the people on the U Iowa Utilities Board right now as we speak is thinking about making some changes to get rid of what's called net metering. Uh, you know, a lot we passed a very long time ago in Iowa. It's been since the 80s. We've had this, and uh, just like there are a whole bunch of climate deniers out there, there are a whole bunch of people who don't want to see this great new uh, energy future that Tim's talking about because it threatens their bottom line. And until we, we've got to figure out how these utility companies can make some money on it at the same time because they have been kind of dragging their feet. I want to put it mildly, but they, some of them are really awful. They really are. There's, there's a, a company, a, an REC in uh, Pella, that wanted to charge you, if you had a solar panel, an extra $70, $50 a month. Because you had a solar panel and it was going to cause somebody a problem. Now the utilities board just slapped them down pretty good. And that was nice to see. But there are those kind of pressures. But, so that's why I keep talking about policy when it comes to wind. Why do we have so much wind more than Nebraska does? And Nebraska has actually a better wind regime. Because they're stupid. And we <laughs> have much better policy. And we made that policy over the last years. Same thing had happened with solar. Why is Germany a cloudy country so far ahead? Because of good policy. Technology has to be put together with that policy. And then when you get that going, uh, you can really address the issue that Jerry and Greg talked about, climate change. Well, I know that we don't have too much time left here, but I would like to ask a question about solar particularly. Uh, we've heard all of the, the, the really positive things that can come from the use of solar energy and the jobs and so on and so forth. Is there any downside to solar energy? I mean, is there anything that, that could be seen as harmful to individuals or to health or whatever? Is there something that we're not thinking of? We know how bad fossil fuels can be, but uh, is there any downside to solar? Well, I, I should ask you. I know you're the salesman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what were you going to say? When you think about that, I mean, everything is powered in our universe or in our world by the sun's power. Everything yeah. you eat, everything yeah. you drink, yeah. the sun touches it, right? Yeah. So if you think about negative things, it's kind of hard to find something. And that's what I really looked at when I came back in to get a different job than my old job. Do I want to go into wind or do I want to go into solar? And I figured... A lot of people don't own a lot of wind turbines. I wanted to go into solar, but also, I mean, it's pure energy. Mm -hmm. It's pure as you can be. Yeah. And once that six months is rubbed off, 
of that carbon footprint of that module, that's pure energy for 25, 30 years. Mm -hmm. It's free. The biggest drawback is probably, you know, that it's intermittent energy. And so that causes you to have to uh, do the workaround on the grid and, and look into storage, uh, new, new battery technology and, mm -hmm. and uh, so forth. But we, we can do it, and it's happening right now. Wow. Well, thank you so much. This has been really fun and, and very informative. So Tim Dwight and Dave Osterberg and Jerry Schnorr, thank you all so much. And um, I hope those of you who are here with us now can stay with us for this final segment coming up. We'll have U.S. Congressman Dave Lobsack and also Iowa State Senator Joe Bolcom. And we also have Mayor Frank County from Des Moines who will be joining us in just a few minutes. World Campus Programming is available on YouTube, iTunes, UITV, and the International Programs mm -hmm. website, which is international.uiowa.edu. I'm Joan Kerr, and thank you very much for being here, and good night. Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr. We're coming to you from Film Scene in downtown Iowa City, and uh, we're happy to have you join us for part three of this series called The Evolution of Climate Change, 25 Years and Counting. Uh, in this segment, we'll focus on the politics of climate change, and we're grateful to have with us this afternoon three elected officials from Iowa. Just next to me is U.S. Congressman representing Iowa's 2nd Congressional District, Dave Lobsack. Good Thank to have you, you here. Thank, Thank you, John. You. Thank you. And next to him is Joe Balcom, Iowa State Senator representing Iowa City, University Heights, and East Lucas Township, and also the City of Hills. Thank you, Joe. <laughs> and at the far end, we have the Mayor of Des Moines, uh, Frank County. Very good to have you here. Great to be here. Well, good. Thank you so much. Um, those of you who are not familiar with this program um, may know that you may not know that you can come to these live programs. Please do. They're held once a month in this location. And you can also find these programs later on UITV and iTunes, YouTube, and the International Programs website. So as we look at the political discussion surrounding uh, climate change, uh, I'd like to ask each of you for your perspectives on how this discussion about climate, climate change, global warming, environmental concerns, how this has changed over the last 10, 20 years. You've all been in politics for a long time and otherwise just concerned with um, life as a citizen. So perhaps we'll start with you, uh, Congressman Loebsack, and ask a for your thoughts on what's changed? Um, well, I am a member of Congress, the, about the most reviled uh, <laughs> institution in America at the moment, and probably with very good reason. Uh, at the moment, there's a lot of chaos going on in Congress at the moment, uh, especially in the U.S. House. Uh, that's going to get in the way of getting anything done on climate change anytime soon. But that being said, one of the most disheartening things for me being a member of Congress and having taught at Cornell College for 24 years uh, trying to think rationally about issues as best I can is the climate deniers who are in the U.S. Congress and around the country. Uh, it's very disheartening to see that because long ago, as some of your previous panelists and other segments said, long ago there, there really was developed pretty much a consensus. I often say that I don't believe in climate change. I know it's a fact because if we start talking about it as if we believe it, then that kind of takes it out of the realm of science, science and knowledge and rationality. It's a fact. Uh, the problem is that there are a lot of folks in the U.S. Congress uh, who simply deny the facts and simply deny the science. And that gets in the way of moving forward to do something about climate change. Yeah, um, so you've been in now for a few terms. Right. Um, have you seen it only get worse in terms of both the dysfunction and the, the 
denial of what we see around us? From yeah, certainly the dysfunction. The denial of science is what's so discouraging to me in general, uh, the science committee, science technology committee. There are many folks on that committee, uh, and again, I try not to be terribly partisan about this, but, but they are Republicans who seem to deny uh, the science, not only of climate change, but of a lot of other things. So we're really up against that in that sense. We really need pressure from the grassroots. It, even though I am one of those who accepts the science of climate change, that shouldn't stop folks from continuing to pressure me because it's very important that we, have, that we register you know, that support for what we're trying to do on this front. But also pressure your senators, pressure the President of the United States, we have the caucuses going on right now in Iowa. Leading, we have the, the debate leading up to the caucuses on February 1st. Talk to folks on both sides of the aisle who are running for president to make sure they understand how important this is. And then beyond that, we have to, we have to understand that Iowa is one of the few states, maybe a handful of states in the country, that's a purple state politically. That means it can go either way in the general election next November, a year from this November. Keep it in the forefront of folks' minds because whoever the nominee is, whichever party you're supporting, that person has to be pressured as well. This is going to be important in the election of 16. Iowa is going to be important. The next president of the United States may be determined by our six electoral votes here in the state of Iowa. So we have to keep it at the forefront of that discussion. If it should happen that the next president is a climate denier or does not want to support research into climate and so on, puts resources elsewhere, what do you see uh, uh, maybe government agencies that would be likely to be disbanded, the money that would fall away from certain kinds of research? What would you imagine would happen? Well, if we have someone who is a climate denier, uh, it's going to be difficult because right now the House of Representatives is controlled by the Republican Party. The Senate is at the moment. I'm hopeful that that can change uh, in the next election. So at least we'll have folks who understand climate change and its terrible effects and what we need to do about it. Uh, but at the same time, in the country at large, folks do understand that climate change is real. They do understand that. So we've had bipartisan support, something I push very hard for, for the production tax credit for wind energy. We've had bipartisan support for the investment tax credit for solar energy. And your previous uh, panelists talked about how much that is, 30%, uh, at the federal level. And the state tax credit for solar is tied to the federal tax credit as well. We, we do have bipartisan support at the moment, but we have to continue to extend those credits well into the future. And I think that we can do that, but we just have to keep pushing as hard as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, and Joe, let me go to you. So you're in the State Senate here in Iowa, and you have been a part of this discussion, conversation for many, many years. How have you seen things change? Well, I think poll after poll tells us that Iowans and Americans, they want clean air, they want clean water. And sometimes uh, the policy piece doesn't necessarily always follow or follow uh, in, in a direct way. And, uh, but I do think uh, over the last number of years in Iowa, especially as we talk about the climate uh, and climate change, that uh, the repeated uh, weather disasters that Iowa has experienced mostly in the form of the, these extreme rain events and this extreme flooding we've had. I think uh, farmers and, and mayors and community leaders and people that do emergency management recognize something's going on and they expect their policymakers to, to get about uh, policies that make a difference. And I think in Iowa we've, we've answered that, as, especially on the adaptation side. We've created the Iowa Flood Center here at the University of Iowa to help communities be more resilient. 
we've created a funding stream actually for local governments to use to make their communities more flood uh, uh, resilient uh, are two really important policies that weren't in place just five years ago uh, that are now trying to address uh, essentially what we know with a warmer planet in Iowa it's going to be more extreme rain events and and people know we need to get better prepared for it. Yeah. And uh, the discussion around such things as fracking in our state, um, do you find this a uh, very polarized discussion at the state house? It's, pre- it's been mostly a localized conversation in northeast Iowa with county supervisors and mining companies. The state hasn't had much of a role at this point. Uh, I think the pressure is off some now on, on those resources given the, how the low price of natural gas has kind of cooled off. Uh, some of the demand for that sand, but uh, it'll continue to be an issue out there. And I think in, in this case, we have local decision makers making really good environmental decisions at this point uh, around that issue. And we've had great support here at the University of Iowa on helping understand the health effects to uh, people in that part of our state. And it's important of research that goes on here on this campus. Yeah. Would you envision a time when at the at the state level there would be some regulations um, regarding such things as fracking? Well, it's a challenge, I think, uh, because it is such a localized issue. Trying to move bills through the legislature, you have to convince 150 legislators, many of whom don't really, they don't experience the issue on a day-to-day basis. So uh, what's been positive about this is that in some ways the state legislature hasn't been mucking around uh, in this issue where local uh, elected officials have, have made good decisions to support the people in the communities around these mines. Well, that takes us to you, Mayor County. Good of you to come over from Des Moines today to talk with us. And I understand that you have been involved for a very long time in um, climate issues, environmental issues. You've served on state, local, and tribal leaders' task force on climate preparedness, uh, the Iowa Climate Change Advisory Council. And uh, you're going to be going to Paris for this next um, environmental meeting. Uh, so, so tell us, first of all, how your own personal interests sort of got triggered in this area, and then what a mayor can do to make a difference in, in his or her community. I, I think as uh, uh, Joe pointed out, I think that, that mayors um, in local government probably is really the key to what, what needs to happen. We certainly need assistance uh, from the state and federal level to, to carry out some of it, but as we look at the, the our our country and quite frankly the state of Iowa and you think about the growth of the future uh, cities is where it's going to happen uh, it's projected that 90% of the GDP increase will happen in cities that uh, quite frankly cities are responsible for about 70% of the uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions so not only do we um, I, I think have a an understanding that responsibility to do something about it, um, we we need to. And quite frankly, um, in Iowa, in most places, uh, it's a bipartisan uh, situation. So I don't run as a Republican or a Democrat or uh, anything else. I run as Frank County and representing the citizens of the city of Des Moines. And uh, I think the majority of our council does the same thing. I think we're all working together for all the citizens, and I think that's quite frankly what ought to happen at the end of the day after we get elected, whether we're Democrats or Republicans, that's what ought to happen in, in the state of Iowa and Washington, D.C. We're all together. Let's figure out some solutions. In Des Moines, uh, as Joe uh, pointed out, we have seen floods. 
we've had to respond to them. Uh, we've had to uh, figure out what our solutions are, what are the causes. And uh, um, we have engaged our local population in that discussion from their households to their businesses in the partnership between that, that business interest, local interest of, of citizens and local government to try to come together and, and think about collaborative efforts that we can take on all fronts. And I think that um, uh, as we looked at ever increasing uh, water flows in our rivers, uh, it scares us a little bit. And we have to deal with the EPA and we have to deal with the Corps of Engineers, we have to deal with FEMA. And there are certain things that, that we are concerned about. We're concerned about water quality. We're concerned also about the amounts. And what does that mean? How do we protect ourselves? How do we, uh, and some of the work that we did on, on uh, one of the task forces, it was all about how do you prepare? How do you mitigate? How do you respond? How do you recover in a resilient kind of a way to whatever situations present themselves in, in your city? And then the, uh, the real task then is to educate the citizens and the businesses uh, to all come together and let's collectively find the solutions to these things. They're not um, uh, inexpensive. And uh, the city of Des Moines uh, is under a consent degree as we speak on, on uh, uh, combined sanitary and storm sewer because of extreme events that happen. And so we have to make a 300 million dollar alteration to our, our system to, uh, to take care of that. Where does the money come from? Um, state has helped us on, on part of it, but uh, we have to, we don't get to ask anybody and say, should we volunteer to do this? No, we gotta do something about it right now. And uh, I think that, that uh, local government uh, is taking that responsibility, the citizens expect it, they uh, want clean water, they want a clean environment, they want good jobs that are resilient uh, uh, for the future. And uh, we have to look at all of our economy and say, what are the jobs of the future? How do we do it? And it's got to start at the local government. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if I might just jump in mm -hmm. on this. You know, we're talking about, in many ways, the effects of climate change, the obvious effects of climate change, flood events, a number of other things. Um, and I think we have to be very careful when we talk about mitigation, when we talk about how we're going to deal with many of the effects of climate change, that we continue to go back to the source of it, that we talk about it politically. You know, we, didn't, we wouldn't have these flood events if it weren't for climate change. Now, in 2008, when we had the huge, great flood here in Iowa, and my congressional district at the time uh, suffered about half of the damage of the whole state at that time, and there were folks who you know, two days after the flood wanted me to say, talk about climate change, talk about global, global warming, talk about these things. Well, I mean, it wasn't a good idea for me at that point. People were still underwater. People just wanted to get, get back into their homes. They wanted to salvage what they could. And it didn't make sense, politically or otherwise, to talk about why this may have happened, why I think it probably happened. But, you know, once we got to a point where we could you know, have a good conversation, a good rational conversation about the causes of these things, then we have to address those issues. So when we talk about these kinds of things, uh, my own view is, by the way, we should take a, a watershed approach to a lot of this. We can get all the stakeholders involved, something that Rob Hogue has been, been pushing very hard for in the state Senate. I know you're, you're behind as well, Joe. Uh, but we can talk about a lot of different issues if we take a bigger approach to this instead of just 
you know, in Des Moines, what's happening with Des Moines Waterworks and the lawsuit, right? But deal with and not just voluntary compliance on water issues either. Uh, deal with incentives as well, how we can get folks to do the right thing, but take a, a very big approach to it, a holistic approach to it. Well, and, and to your point, I think that that's, that's how we look at it. We, the water is not something we've dug out of the ground. It comes out of our watershed from the Des Moines and the Raccoon Rivers, and all that water falls someplace else and flows down to us. And so uh, I, I think that we have to look at the source and look at, uh, at the flows and look at what's in it and try to collectively, all of us, all Iowans, figure out how we, in that case, clean up Iowa's water. It's not just Des Moines that needs to do it. I talk to cities across this state uh, that are having similar issues that are not quite as well publicized. But uh, um, we all have issues in, uh, with water and water is a precious resource for future generations. We need to protect it in the whole state. Our watershed certainly is what we're focused on, but uh, for you at the, across the state and all the work that you guys have done right here in, at the University of Iowa is very helpful and hopefully is sending a message out to, the, out to all of our citizens, the D's and the R's. And also on the water issue, you know, it's very controversial what's happening right now with the EPA and their Waters the U.S. rule that they, just, that, they, that they put out. And a lot of farmers are very concerned about that. But to go back to some of the other issues that you discussed in previous segments, solar, for example, I, I went to a, a, a farm in northern Clinton County just recently, and the farmers wanted me to come out because they wanted me to look at the ditches that they, they believe might be regulated if this rule is allowed to go into effect. And that was great. It was interesting to talk to them and, and, and sort of look you know, physically where this is. But on the way back, they said, now, Congressman, we have something else we want to show you. I said, okay, great. We got back to the main farm, and I hadn't noticed it because the panels were on the south side, but they were very proud. I don't know if Tim Dwight's company put those in or not, but they were very proud of the fact that they had put these solar panels up. So they were talking to me about one sort of aspect of the problem, and then, and then, they, and then they showed me something else where they're trying to deal with, in many ways, the, the causes of some of those problems. And so when you ask politically, too, you know, whether we can have an effect or whether we can resolve the issue, uh, when you have farmers, uh, you know, who, who, who understand the bottom line because of the state tax credit, because of investment tax credit at the federal level, and they want to make sure that they have an operation that's efficient and, and where they can make money, who are very proud of the fact that they have this and they're showing their congressmen this. I think we've made some progress and I think we have the potential to make pro more progress as well. Are there any uh, state initiatives that you would like to see uh, move forward, Joe? Well, I, I mentioned at the outset, I mean, uh, in terms of Mayor County, I mean, Mayor County has to, when it floods in Des Moines, he has to get to work helping his business and citizens. And if you look at the settlement of Iowa, we've settled along rivers, and there's many mayors that have been in the same place that local governments have to really figure it out. And they've turned to the state, uh, and they've turned to the federal government. FEMA does a, does a good job, I think. At the state level, you know, after the 2008 flood, we created this thing called the Iowa Flood Center at the University of Iowa. A group of legislators came to campus, sat down with our experts in hydrology at our hydrology laboratory, and uh, created the center. $1.5 million a year doing mapping, doing uh, monitoring of streams, a whole host of things through that investment. And when that was created, nobody really thought we're investing in managing climate change in Iowa. 
couple years ago, uh, Senator Rob Hogue led an effort to create a funding source for local communities around the state. Mayor County and, and our mayors need financial help to become more resilient. We created a fund, $30 million a year, that about a dozen communities have applied for to make their towns more resilient. When we passed that, you know, because we, we debate in Des Moines, is climate change real or not? People said, no, we need to help local governments. It wasn't a climate change conversation. But clearly, the investment is an adaptation move by the state of Iowa to help communities become more resilient on the adaptation side. On the mitigation side, we've done a few things. The solar credit's been hugely popular. We're spending five dollars a year. We've probably had $80 million worth of private investment for about 10 or $12 million worth of state investment. Really good return. Created jobs in more than 80 counties at this point. The farmers love it, and over the last two years, we know when one farmer sees something, another farmer looks over the fence and says, what are you doing over there? Well, I'm saving money. And suddenly, I mean, you go down to Washington County today, and there are dozens of farmers soaking up the tax credits that the state of Iowa and the federal government has provided. That's policy. And the local REC there has a huge wind display array. So it, it, was, it was stated oh, on so the last so. segment by, by former Representative Osterberg, uh, policy is really, really important. One person can do a solar thing because they're trying to save the planet. These farmers are doing it because there's tax policy that helps them put it into place. It's good for their bottom line. So uh, policy is really important. And, you know, the cr on, the, on the solar credit, it expires at the end of 2016. Right. We need Congress to, to renew it, and the state credit tracks what the federal credit does. So we need to, we need to be there ready to renew it. It'll, it's, it's a little thing, uh, but it's really driving a lot of job creation, a lot of good decision-making by local people. Will it be renewed? I hope so. Um, I've introduced legislation to do just that, and uh, hopefully the, we're going we're gonna to have a good coalition put together by that time. But again, uh, with Congress, as they say on the news nowadays, uh, being in chaos, uh, it's difficult to know where we're headed on these things. But I'll just continue to press as hard as I can. And, and also on the production tax credit as well. Uh, you know, it was already discussed in previous segments how important wind energy is here in Iowa. It's estimated that uh, by the end of this year, we'll probably be upwards of 30% of our electricity accounted for by wind energy here in the state of Iowa. That's a big deal. That's really important. Yes, we have to deal with the grid. Yes, we have to deal with a number of things to make sure that more folks can get online and actually use uh, wind energy. But it's possible. And, uh, you know, we've seen at least uh, one utility, uh, MidAmerican, partnering with Siemens, which is in my district in Fort Madison. The blades are produced there for these towers, uh, and they've got a number of projects now that they're undertaking. It's a, it's a really good thing for jobs. It's a great thing for the environment. It's a good thing for the state of Iowa. We have thousands of jobs, literally, that, that are accounted for by the wind end, it, industry, and over 70,000, upwards of 75,000 nationwide as well. Mm -hmm. So we've got to expand that, and that production tax credit's very important. Is there something you dream of as the mayor of Des Moines, something that would just really help you out that, that you could ask either of these guys for this afternoon? Sure. You know, I think everything that we're talking about here uh, with uh, production tax credits, with, uh, with help on, on emergency issues, uh, especially um, 
no city has in their budget uh, enough money to offset some of the potential damage. Certainly we saw uh, devastating amounts in Cedar Rapids in 2008. We saw uh, potential for a similar situation in Des Moines the same year. Uh, we all uh, uh, respond to it and I, uh, as you pointed out, some of those uh, uh, congressional and, and uh, other task force that I've served on, probably it's because uh, the unfortunate situation, we've had to respond to a, a number of those things. And so, oh, well, let's ask Des Moines. They've, they've, uh, they've been in the middle of a flood. They've been in the middle of a, you know, around tornadoes. They've been around all this other stuff. Let's bring them in and, and talk about it because we've done it repeatedly. And uh, back to 2008, 2010, we had three near 500-year flood events. And uh, um, with the help of the state and the federal government and city investment, we've in pump stations, we've fixed levees, we've done all kinds of stuff, and so we were able to get by um, it, those, those situations. But I think that um, um, education also, I think, is huge in, in this area because um, that's the one thing that I think has helped, I think, an awful lot of our, our citizens have, um, compared to a decade ago, uh, where they were, yeah, we'll have a little discussion about this and, and there's something that we ought to work on and, and some other things. So if we could focus on education as it relates to climate issues, whether it's in the sciences, whether it's in history, and in, in relate to the young kids. i got to tell you, young kids are the ones that get it the quickest and the fastest. And they understand and they go home and they say, hey, why are we dumping all that water out there? We should have a rain garden. Uh, we should do all kinds of different things, and uh, we go around the city trying to do that. But if we do that across the state of Iowa and talk about how we preserve resources, how we get the water back in the ground as opposed to down to the Gulf of Mexico and all the other things that it takes with it, I think that would go a long way. So I'd say some money for situations, great education, great policy. I think uh, the clean power plant idea is a really um, – Good one. I know it's controversial. I know uh, there's some people that uh, have issues with it, but I think it, uh, whether it's federal or state, all those kinds of rules and regulations that help get us along, that help move people in the right direction, but get them to understand that we're doing it for the right reasons. Wow. Well, I guess that's a good place for us to end this. I thank you so much, Mayor County, for coming over to join us today. And Joe Balkum, thank you. And Councilman Lobzak, thank I you too. very much for being here. Uh, thanks to all of you for joining us for this discussion this afternoon. And uh, you'll be able to see this full collection of uh, episodes on um, UITV, on iTunes, YouTube, and uh, the International Programs website, international.uiowa.edu. I invite you to join us for the next program, which is November 10th here in this room, and uh, we'll be talking to uh, a woman in public health who's worked in Bangladesh and many places all over the world on uh, communicating for better health, behavioral and, and uh, social change for better health outcomes. It should be a very interesting program. She'll be receiving our International Impact Award at that next program. So join us if you can. Thank you for being here tonight, and we'll see you next time. Good night.